Welcome to the Golden Age of Cardboard podcast, where we remember a time when stacks of cards were held together with rubber bands and Mickey Mantles were put in bike spokes. We hope you will enjoy and reminisce as you come along with us as we tell stories about the baseball cards from the Golden Age of Baseball. We will examine the state of the vintage baseball card market and talk to some of the greatest collectors in the hobby. You won't be hearing us talk about any chrome or shiny cards here. Now, to take you on this retrospective journey, here's your host, direct from the shallow end of the gene pool, my son, Mike Moynihan. Yo, and hello everybody, Mike here. And welcome to another episode of the Golden Age of Cardboard podcast. Another week has gone by. We're getting through February here. 2022 is just rolling along. And before you know it, we'll be at the National and so much. I mean, if only they could figure out baseball issues and get baseball rolling. It's really pissing me off. I'm just going to be honest. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Both sides have issues and it just... Figure it out, guys. Let's go. Come on. We want some baseball this year. Uh, I'm really excited about the upcoming season. Although my Rangers will be terrible, I don't care. I just, I'm ready to see some baseball. And uh, this should be a time of excitement with pitchers and catchers reporting and all that. And all we're doing is reading about billionaires fighting with millionaires. And it, it, it gets old really quick. And I think baseball, whether they realize it or not, they are slitting their own throat. And that's just a shame to see. But we're not here to talk about modern baseball. We're here to talk about vintage baseball. This is a vintage baseball card podcast. I think it's the number one vintage baseball card podcast because I don't know of any others. So I guess I'm just number one by default. But if you're listening on podcast, please go down below and write a review for the show. Uh, I would love to see what people think and uh, would love that feedback and give the show a review, give it a five stars or whatever it is you do, wherever you're listening would appreciate that. If you're on YouTube, always, as we go through this, appreciate the comments. Always welcome. Yeah. So today's episode is is just going to be kind of an episode just talking about why vintage is so awesome and what I love about it. And my guest today is a gentleman that I met in person. I've known about him for, for a number of years. It's James. His YouTube channel is Elite Hunters. I've known about him for a number of years, and James uh, and I got to meet at a Dallas card show, actually at a, a an event put on by Dr. Jim, James Beckett, Jim Beckett, and uh, for content creators, and we got to meet there, and then I had James over to my house, and we just hung out. I'll let him tell that story, but uh, let me get him on here, and we'll start talking about why Vintage is awesome. James, what's up, man? Welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing, Mike? Thank you for having me. Do we have a delay? Oh, there we go. Oh, okay. It hung up there for a second. So, oh no, thank How you for you, having man? me, Mike. I'm I'm good. I'm excited. Um, we're talking about my favorite area of collecting, which is vintage, and I'm excited. Let's do this. Well, I have to tell you, when I found your channel on YouTube a number of years ago, I was so impressed with your collection and your knowledge of vintage and just whether it was kind of the golden age that we talked about on this show, pre-war. I mean, 
your collection's amazing. I got to tell you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> I, it I just is. collect what I love, which is basically the history of baseball. I love baseball. And I feel like baseball is nothing without the foundation that it's, it was built on. And the more and more I keep diving into it, the more I keep uncovering and falling more and more in love with it. So when did you start becoming more vintage centric in your collecting? Uh, definitely when I got back in, because I had the means to start picking some of these cards up, but I always knew about it when I was young. It's just a lot of these cards were unaffordable for me. Um, $75 for a card seemed like 500 now, you know? I mean, for a little kid, it's just, no, I'd rather have a ColecoVision or an Atari. <laughs> right. Yeah. When did you get back in the hobby? Around 2018, I got back in. Um, I started seeing YouTube videos of people breaking stuff and uncovering autos and relics. And I was so oblivious to how baseball cards evolved because I couldn't stand the junk wax era and how things got out of control with all the different sets and companies. So it turned me off and I just said, you know what? I'm gonna focus on girls hanging out, doing me in my twenties. And that was it, I checked out. <laughs> that is such a amazingly common story for collectors. Like you hear about it all the time that they have a gap in their collecting history of varying rate, you know, ranges of time to, you know, have families and go to college and, you know, grow up. And then you go, man, I kind of miss that part <laughs> of my life. And, and you start diving into it. And I do think the financial aspect is something that people don't want to talk about because they're either embarrassed or um, it's kind of taboo to talk about money typically, but it does matter. I mean, to buy vintage cards, to buy great stuff, it, it takes money to do that. And typically you can only do that once you kind of get a little older and you have a little more discretionary income and can start buying the cards. It's not like when we were, and I'll speak for myself, when I was a kid, I always wanted mantle cards and Ruth and all the, you know, I wanted all that stuff. I just couldn't afford it. Right. So it was never a question of desire. It was a question of means, like you said. And uh, I, I think our shared appreciation for the history of the game is I think what gets people really going down that vintage road. Um, I, I don't think you can be a true lover of vintage cards and not love the history of the game. I think those things have to kind of be symbiotic together. Otherwise, it just doesn't feel right. You know what I mean? I, I totally agree with you. And it's like you get smarter about baseball the more and more you keep diving in and learning and and sometimes it doesn't happen until you pick up a card of a player and now it gives you the excuse because you're invested you now you put your money where your mouth is let me look into this player and sometimes having a youtube channel gives you the excuse because you want to sound smart when you talk about that you know <laughs> that card you picked up so the last thing you need is people on the comments checking your your facts and telling you, hey, you said this and that and that and this and this and that. Maybe you should uh, stop doing a YouTube channel. <laughs> so yeah, for me, what really when I started watching Ken Burns baseball a lot and learning so much of the history and then taking 
the little snippets that he would put in the show and diving even deeper into a certain world series or a certain player, you know, he might, he might talk about Rube Marquard or, you know, um, just the 1912 world series, 1948 world, whatever. And I would want to go, man, that's interesting. I want to go learn more about that. And then you learn about the players and you go, man, I want to pick up a card of that guy um, of Fred Merkel or from Merkel's bone, you know, just all kinds of weird stuff that, the history makes me want to own a, a card from that era, if that makes sense, of that player. There's a connection there to learning about the history and the cardboard that tells the history, right? Right, right. And then also, based on certain players you get to see now and appreciate and you keep hearing lauded as a true legend like Ken Griffey Jr. or Barry Bonds and what they're doing and they're breaking records because records in baseball – are like what you associate with a standard of how great a player is. Once he busts through that record, oh, where do we put him now in the other pantheons against all these other greats and immortals? And that's what's great. It always draws you back to yesteryear, to the players that set records. And then it helps celebrate those players all over again. And then you start comparing, and maybe you want to talk to someone who saw that player play. Um, and I just love diving in. War is why I love war, because the stats sometimes just don't compare. And then, but war paints a truer picture to how important they were to their team, their player, uh, uh, the, the, the era. And you can compare a little bit with war. All right, Mickey Mantle and Willie Mays compared to Trout, compared to Ty Cobb in a dead ball era, where they were hitting 10 home runs and leading the the league with home runs with 10 home runs it's hard to fathom but uh it, it's it makes people historian after a while <laughs> yeah and i do think there's i i get the idea of wanting to collect players that you can watch play uh there, there's a huge attraction to that i totally understand that when i was a kid i wanted buddy bell and jim sunberg and players that I watched on the Rangers as a kid, I wanted their cards. Um, so the idea that kids today want Acuna and Otani and Trout and all these current players makes sense. And I think as they get older and learn about the history, if they have that passion for the history of the game, they will start. I think you convert over to, you don't start as a vintage collector. I think you convert to a vintage collector over time. Um, as you age, mature in your hobby and in your in your likes and dislikes. Um, and I know like you've done some great project. Like I want to talk about some of your video series that you've done, because if you don't follow James, uh, his, his YouTube channel is Elite Hunters. Uh, again, James and I have been friends now for what? A year and a half or so, two years. Basically. I've been watching you since I got back in. You're one of the first channels I followed. And, um, and I actually thought, <laughs> yeah, I actually thought, I didn't know how big the card community was and how guarded you can be if you have very valuable cards. So I thought I could reach out to you like a Facebook or something and, and just make friends with you just like that. And <laughs> no, no, no. It's a lot more different than that. <laughs> <laughs> there is a little... Uh you got to kind of pay your dues a little 
because and I, and I think that's only smart to be guarded a little bit. We're talking about a lot of money, right? And I if you just open yourself up, not that I was worried about you or anything like that. Um, heck, you've been here, you know, um, that story. So, James, I'll tell you a part of the story. James and I were talking on the phone and uh, I was like, yeah, you got to come over sometime. And he's like, well, I'm not doing any. And I'm like, well, come on. Or I can't remember exactly how it went, but it was it turned from. A, a two minute conversation and uh, come on over and hang out. Uh, and we did for hours and you got to go through the beast a little bit and uh, hopefully you had a good time. Oh, I had a great time. It, it was um, surreal to see so many beautiful pieces all in, in like a two hour span that I think we hung out, had a few beers. Um, some of the stuff he pulled out is stuff that I'd be lucky to see at the National. And I'm seeing it in your room. You're just handing me card after card after card. That was that was a treat. That's the only thing I could say. It, it was a true treat. Well, it is one of my... I, I truly believe if you don't share it, what's the point of having it? You know, if you don't share it with other people and hopefully your passion will come out and you talk about cards that you have. And I love hearing those stories and stuff, but let me get back to your YouTube channel. Sorry. I digressed a minute. Some projects that you've done that I just truly love is you've done a project where you go get cards of MVP players. And, and from that year, um, and you're going way back and you're you've done that. And then the other series I want to talk about, let's talk about the MVPs first. But the other one is the the goats when you at each position, when you had a bunch of guys on and you guys were trying to decide who's the goat at each position. <laughs> and uh, what I love about that is it forces you to think, you know, Tris Speaker and Rogers Hornsby and, you know, these guys, everybody thinks modern guys. And you can go back and find some pretty amazing players way back in the day, you know, and then where does Mays rank versus DiMaggio? And, you know, you can compare eras and you guys did that as you talked about earlier, but talk about the MVP thing. Cause I think you put so much work into that series and it's just absolutely fantastic. What inspired you to do that? Okay. So the MVP series came about was shortly after January around January. Um, last year where car prices were going crazy and ballistic. So I don't want to stop collecting just because the hobby dictates prices are out of control. So I just decided to zig when everybody else was zagging. And I said, well, what can I collect that still means something to me? Makes me feel like I want to chase it and makes me feel pride when I, when I accumulate these cards. And, and it's a little challenge also. I want to I don't want it to be easy where I could just pick them all up and that's it. Right. Um, the MVP cards, when I looked into it, because I, I, prior to that, I was in the Triple Crown series. And then I said, well, what other awards can I get into? MVP, Cy Young, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm like, okay, let me look at the MVP. And I researched it all the way back to like the Chalmers Award. And I was like, well, I don't think I want to take it that far back. But maybe if I do from the 50s on over, I could collect every MVP winner to now. And then I started researching all the players um, for each league. And I was like, I think I could do this. And not all of them are too expensive, but some are a little challenging. And it's a way where I don't have to spend 
$500 per card. I could pick some up at $10, $25 and, you know, not throw money at it all at once, but, and then pick and choose throughout the 50s and 60s, some of the nicer raw ones for like 10 bucks that are worth maybe $80 if it grades an eight. And I still have a nice card, like of a Bob Gibson, like whoever won the MVP usually 80% of the time is a name, like a big name. And then at the same time, you get to pick up other players that might just might not have any spotlight. Um, people don't talk about them. Sort of like Ken Boyer. I just did the 60s and Ken Boyer was someone that no one talks about. I don't even hear about his name. I pick him up, put, put him to the side. But when I researched him for this video, I was like, hey, it's pretty good. He was a cleanup hitter. And now I know about Ken Boyer. So it helps me also broaden my, my scope and my view on the vintage era, the eras of the 60s, the 70s, the 50s, and I have more appreciation for these players. Uh, it, it's cool. It's just a nice way to collect cards and, and just not that key cards of rookie cards or the expensive cards, which we all want. We all hope to get those grail cards Sometimes you just can't do it. But does that mean you stop collecting? No. Just find other stuff that might mean something to you. Now, all right, talk about the the GOAT idea and what you were thinking with that, who you got involved in that. And uh, I'll be back in two seconds. You go ahead and do that. <laughs> well, the GOAT idea, it was actually the, we called it the Mount Rushmore of each position. That's right. That's right. So I think it's just through conversation with other YouTubers. I'm friends with Don, Field of Dreams, John, Mangini, um, Rick, Vintage Cards. And in talking with all of them, George, Diamond Yard, Lou Rock, um, we're always talking about the best of the best. And sometimes we get into these debates, uh, sometimes based on whatever team you root for or whatever, like you, you're, you're a big Josh Hamilton fan. Yvonne Rodriguez, you might stick up for Yvonne Rodriguez deserving to be on the Mount Rushmore. And you might not be wrong, but uh, we would have heated debates sometimes about who, who should be on that Mount Rushmore. And I think me, George, and Don were like, you know what, we should do a video on this. And then I was thinking to myself, what should I do, like on bits and pieces? Like, I would love to have you guys on. And eventually we just said, let's do it. And John, with how great a collection he has, John Mangini, he was the fourth. Once we got the fourth, it was like, let's do this. And then we had to like pick out who's going to illustrate who. John Mangini was playing hardball. He was like, I'm not telling you who I'm picking. It's going to be live. Or, you know, I don't want to do this orchestrated. And we're like, oh, Lord, <laughs> John being John, <laughs> always being difficult. But uh, he just likes to follow, uh, you know, his own. What's the? He's a trailblazer, per se. Yeah. And, uh, but it was cool, kept us on our toes. And the discussions for like a month, we would discuss maybe 10 possible names, which was so cool to have these discussions. And even to the last minute, I had Jeter as my immortal and eventually I had to go with Cal Ripken. And George was like, yes, we got yeah. Cal Ripken in there because he thinks I was crazy. Just, you know, my fan base, my, I was uh, picking Jeter, but I eventually had to come to my senses and elect uh, Cal Ripken for shortstop amongst one of the four. 
But I just love celebrating the history, the players, um, shedding light on players for their accomplishments. For um, It's not easy having a long career of like 20 years or 10 years and being one of the best of the best. And then for all of us to have some of these players in our collections, you know, like you said, it's good to share them with people. It's good to show them off every now and then. What else are they going to do? Like on a rainy day, we look at them for ourselves. No, let's look for excuses to share them. And I thought of Mount Rushmore was a nice way and a debatable topic because it's only four. That's it. <laughs> at each position, <laughs> right? You did position by position. Yes. Were there any players through that process that you kind of maybe had overlooked in your mind and went, wow, I, I need to go get some cards of this guy. Cause he was truly one of the Mount Rushmore players of that position. Wow. Well, there aren't any that I could say. I wish, I just wish I would have gotten maybe a few more Ted. I don't have any Ted Williams playing day cards. So once the pandemic hit, that was one of my regrets that I never picked up some of these players, but no one knew the pandemic was going to come right. and throw the hobby upside down. Um, there were a lot of these cards that I said, I'll get to them later. You know, I'll, I'll eventually pick him up. And uh, Ted Williams is one that, oh man, he's, he's getting more challenging to pick up the, the more that time passes. Um, there's other players like Hank Greenberg. I wish I had a few more, but, with B Roth and the chosen roster, you, you can't get any of these players because they snatch them all up. What, um, uh, let me ask you this. Let's just take Ted Williams, for example. If there's people out there listening or watching that, you know, I'd like to add some Ted Williams. What are some cards through your research that you say, I, these are a couple of the Ted Williams cards that I think are gettable, desirable. What do you like for Ted's run? Well, I'm actually trying to pick up maybe a 51 Bowman. His Bowman cards, the 50 and the 51, are relatively affordable given what his other cards are going for. The problem with Ted Williams is he has a gap in the 40s where, you know, because of the war, cards just weren't getting produced. And there's a lot of players during that time frame that you just can't find their cards. So they go whether unappreciated or you just can't find them. So I would say if you stick to the 50s with the tops, 54, or any other of his cards, not the 54 Bowman, that one's just crazy. But um, if you could find the 51 tops, 50 tops, 54 tops, you'll be fine. That, that's a nice looking card, and it's not going to break the bank. I was shooting for the 48 Leaf, but I don't think I could pick that one up anymore. And for what player are you talking about? Ted Williams. Uh, Ted, Ted Williams doesn't have a 51 top. She said 51. You meant Bowman. 51 Bowman. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. 50 Bowman, the 54 right. tops. He has two of them. Right. right. And then his uh, 48 leaf is one that I wanted, but I just, I, I don't think I could get it anymore. It's in the four figure range and I could get it, but these are decision cards when you have to go into the four-figure range. It's like, do I really need it? Like, how, how many times am, am I going to keep throwing money at cards after a while? I believe Mike has a really nice one here. You mean 
that one? Oh, man. Why, why are you going to rub it in my face? <laughs> I'm showing a 48-leaf Williams that I got relatively recently. I think at one of the recent Dallas card shows. It's in a poor one, but uh, I'm not complaining. I love it. Absolutely. It's really nice. Um, yeah, that that's a beauty. Colors pop on that. It, it's it's got any leaf card has gone up because that's such a hard set to to pick up and to find and sharp registration. So registration is a lot with vintage cards. I'll tell you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's the other thing I actually love about vintage. This since the topic is why vintage is awesome. And it's because there's so much that goes into the eye appeal of a card. A modern card comes out of a pack. It's pretty much perfect. I mean, it might be a little off center, but the, the picture quality has improved so much as printing qualities has improved. You just don't have the issues and they're brand new. They haven't been through. I don't know. I'd love to know the story of all my vintage cards and how many hands literally they've been through, how many wallets they might've been in or bike spokes they, they ran on. Point being, Every vintage card is truly unique, and there is so much to consider if you're going to add a vintage card to your collect. Is that the one for your collection? Is it registration? Is it corners? Is it centering? Is it pick? Is it um, color quality? Is it is there damage? Is there uh, is it missing? You know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Some of the cards missing. I just went blank. Uh, does it have uh, a corner chopped off of it or whatever? There's so much that goes into it. To me, that's the fun part, right? It's right. assessing each card uniquely in its own little world of, okay, is this the one? Is it? And then you have to deal with price and is it priced right and yada, yada. That makes it right. so much more than just going and buying a Jim Mint 10-1 soda rookie. They're all right. going to look the same, right? I mean, big, hairy deal. And not that they're not cool. I have a Jim Mint 10-1 Soto Rookie, so I'm not talking about something I don't enjoy, too. Vintage just adds a whole other element of coolness because you're you're checking all that stuff out, right? Right. And, and like what you have there with a Ted Williams, it's okay to have a one. Um, as long as it, it's good for you as, as you're happy with it. And sometimes there's ones with paper loss that look sharp. In the front. paper loss. That's what I was trying to think of earlier. I couldn't think of paper loss. Paper <laughs> loss. Yeah. Whoops. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. So sometimes you might have paper loss or a crease somewhere, but it's not ruining the eye appeal of the card. Whereas opposed to with modern cards, and I'm like you, I collect modern cards. I have a lot of modern cards, but it doesn't tickle me as much as vintage cards. And I. I'll show you one in particular I do have here that I wanted to piggyback off of what you were saying, the history of the car. I have this 38 heads up Gaudi Charlie Geringer. It's a 2.5. But what I love about this card is right there, you'll notice the rubber band crease on the bottom. And it just makes me feel like little Johnny had this in the sandlot with his other favorite cards and maybe he was trading with his friends. What was he doing with this? It has a story to tell. This might look like an imperfection to a lot of people, this little rubber band crease in the bottom. That to me was a huge selling point. I loved it. 
because I wasn't expecting to pick up more than a three or four, you know, if I got lucky. This, no creases, great eye appeal for me, but it's that little crease that did it for me, that rubber band crease that just opened up my imagination and made me wonder what little kid, because you know a little kid owned it. What little kid owned it? Where did he take it that it got a little bit dirty? And for how long did he love that? Was it his favorite player? And it's just, yeah, your wheels start turning and it opens up all these nuances that, like you say, it's like you're just the holder of that card for the next person because you don't take it with you in the end. But now you have that baton and how will you appreciate it until the next one takes it over from you? And it's like, it's a big responsibility when you think about it. (laughs) Yeah, it's so funny how assigned grade no matter who graded the card it's great to have a card graded because then it's in it's kind of frozen in time at that point barring somebody cracking it out and you know running it over with their car it's bam this is it this is where this card is going to live condition wise it's not going to get better it's not going to get worse it is what it is and that's great because it allows you to to hold a card and and look at a card in a way you probably wouldn't you be they're delicate and fragile and you're afraid to hurt it more you don't have to be afraid in a in a slab that's that's wonderful it authenticates it obviously which is another reason i love slab cards the assigned grade almost becomes uh an afterthought i mean do i care about the assigned grade i'd be a liar if i said i don't i do but at the same time you know i want a beautiful card right? At the end of the day, with, that tells a story, like you said, and sometimes that's a one and that, no. and yeah, that's okay. Uh, and then so, go ahead. Like you were saying with vintage, the eye appeal for one may be different for another. And, you know, you should collect what you love, what, what speaks to you. But when it comes to vintage with pre-war, you know, and the lower grade cards, it there's no rules to it it's what you love like i do have another card here which i'm gonna share with you this is uh 1951 duke snyder it's a grade five and a bbg slab but as you could tell it's off-centered but to me i don't mind the off-center with this one because the eye appeal with this is in sharp corners and it's notorious for print lines there's no print roller lines on this whatsoever and the colors pop. So for me, it has everything else other than the centering and I'm fine with that. And I probably paid like 40 or $50 for this thing. You're telling me I got this card over a few blaster boxes of, uh, I don't know, gambling lottery tickets per se, because you never know what you're gonna get in these blaster boxes. I'd rather have this for sure, any every day of the week. And it's a great player, Duke Snyder, but- yeah. It, it is funny how people prioritize different aspects of, of vintage condition, right? To me, if I can get a nice looking off-centered card and it's graded that way, like a 6OC or a 4OC or MK, or not MK, uh, MC, I don't care. It means it's cheaper. And as long as the rest of the card, and some people would rather die than have a miscut card. And that's okay. Like it's, different strokes for different folks. I'm okay with it because I can get it a lot cheaper. I can still own the card. And that's how it came out of the bloody factory. I can't, you know, to think that all cards are perfectly centered is 
living in fantasy land. That just doesn't happen. And so you could have opened a pack in 1954 and your cards would be all off center. And, you know, what are you going to do? Right. Uh, it's just how they were. It wasn't, it was an imperfect process for sure. Printing and, and cutting of those cards. And that just kind of goes with the story of vintage, right? Just part of it. I mean, and that that's also why you need to be a little bit um, smart with vintage and not just throw money at it. You should take your time out and research and figure out from set to set what were their notorious issues? Some were print lines, others were notorious for miscuts or OC. So when you do find a centered one, maybe you need to pounce on it when it comes up and not sit on it. Or um, pop reports, that's another big thing. Sometimes I'll come up upon a card that's just like 30 graded and I'm like, why am I still thinking about this right now? <laughs> I might just have to pony up an extra hundred dollars because there's just none out there. And so vintage is cool for that factor. It's because how many people have a Juan Soto? Rook, I have a 10 and it's nice to have. I hope he has the career that his projections are going with like Albert Pujols or something, but we don't know. We, we won't know. And it's a big question mark, but these guys, their stories have been written. It's not changing. And it's more about what comes up, what can you find, and your budget. Like, I, I recommend everyone have their budget. I like to zero in on a card and then figure out where's my budget to own that card. And once I figure out my budget, then I compare for that budget what's, what's been coming up. Like, let's say it's $200 for a player. All right, for $200, what will that get me? A three or a four or a two or whatever, a one. And then after that, you can gauge. And it takes a while. It's not something you just boom and do it. No, it takes a while. You have to get invested, research, find out, like with the lead sets, registration, registrate. Give me a registration card with that lead set. And uh -oh. um, the 51 Bowman. for a moment. I'll bring him back. Oh, here he comes. Go ahead. Sorry, man. <laughs> I don't know what you heard last, but um, I heard uh, talking about the leaf set and the registration and all that. So with registration with the leaf set, that's a premium. Like you can't worry about corners, maybe a slight crease if that bothers you and um, centering, punt that. If you get a nice registration with that leaf set, snatch them up every day of the week. So you, you have to know your sets and you have to know what to look for. I appeal wise with a, a certain set. And you can't be finicky about it as much with vintage. I do think that what you just said, that's a lot of work. And I think that dissuades some people from diving into vintage because they don't want to put in the necessary work to learn, especially younger kids. I mean, they want it now and fast and moving and shaking and all these things. I do think that also comes with age. Your your life kind of slows down and you can kind of go, okay, let me let me really dive into this and learn about the nuances of these different sets and stuff. So um, but I, I think that is for younger kids maybe a, a reason they don't go into vintage. And there are younger guys that love vintage, like Ryan Nolan and JT. You know, I know some guys in their early 20s that love vintage too. 
and they've, but they've taken the time to learn and just not everybody's built that way. And that's okay. It's just that we're telling you the recipe for success in vintage is learning and doing your homework and being patient and not just buying the first one you see. Right. And, uh, so talk about, uh, maybe some other players that you love, some other eras that you love, sets that you love? Well, I love all eras. Sometimes what I do is I try to narrow down what I want to collect because you can't pick up every key rookie card. It'd be nice, but you'll be broke real fast. And so I narrow down. Uh, I try to focus like I did the MVPs. Prior to that, I was doing the Triple Crown. Um, winners and that that's gotten to a point where okay i got only big names to pick up now so that's slowed down a lot um next i might consider doing cy young winners or rookie of the years or sometimes it's just like hispanics i love hispanics because i'm latin i'm of colombian descent i was born here in the states but my parents uh were born in colombia met there came here had me and my sister and so Hispanics, people that I could identify with, uh, my friend Lou Rock, me and him, we, we constantly chase Hispanic rookie key cards because we can identify and we look upon them as heroes per se because they've done it. They've lived the dream that we wish we could have lived in baseball but weren't good enough. So like Juan Marichal, Roberto Clemente, of course, uh, Orlando Cepeda, the, uh, Louis Tian, um, a number of players, we just try to pick up those type of players because we identify with them. Maybe for um, uh, black people, it might be Jackie Robinson, um, other players like that. But I try to collect Hispanics here and there. Um, I don't set build as much. I find that to be a daunting task. And uh, I don't value the comments like others would. So there's times I could maybe try it. And then after a while, I look at the comments like, eh, they do nothing for me, but I had to spend $50 on this card because it's a high number series. Right. And it, I just don't get it. Like it doesn't do anything for me. But um, I, 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 like, I like doing uh, Immortals, um, Hall of Famers, uh, the T206s, the T205s, all those sets. Uh, owning cards, old judge cards, stuff that I feel like should be in a museum. When I get to say I own those cards, it's it's it just takes me back a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I, I like to collect a little of everything when it comes to vintage. I love that you are recognizing your heritage and and being Latin and loving those players. And I wish we could see the hobby continue to get more diverse and more people from different backgrounds and different ethnic backgrounds and whatever. I don't know how to solve that problem. I don't, or if it, it may not even be a problem, I may be making something in a mountain out of a molehill, but um, what do you think keeps particularly in your case, Hispanics from being involved in the hobby as, as much as they could. I think maybe it's not cool enough. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I hate to say it, but card collecting is kind of nerdy. Yeah. And uh, if I speak to my friends I grew up with, they'll look at me like I have three heads if I tell them I'm collecting cards, you know, right. as, as a hobby. 
and it's just not cool enough like maybe listening to the latest music or or fashion or a latest movie it's just not a cool topic some people will ask me about the money aspect like oh my god you bought this card and it's worth how much because money anyone knows about money and everyone always chases what's worth more in the future um but if it's not for the money aspect, I don't know if they're like even trying to listen to what I have to say so much. So I think it's a little bit of the cool aspect. Cards just doesn't have it. <laughs> when I have people over that don't, that aren't into cards, the first question they always ask is what's your most expensive card? It's always about the money part of it. And they don't care if I want to tell them a story about a certain player or why they're significant or they could care less. They just, man, that's worth X, Y, Z dollars. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, oh, that's awesome. And it's a sad to me, honestly. I'm like, well, you don't get it. So just get out of here. <laughs> I don't even, I don't even need to show it to you. But what kind of, in terms of just the vintage market overall, you know, the last three, four years that you've been doing it, four years, do you see the vintage market continuing to kind of grow and prosper? Or do you see it kind of pulling back a little bit? No, I think it'll always be on a steady incline. Like it'll, maybe it has its points where it, it um, corrects, but I rarely ever see cards go down like as volatile as modern cards. And it's always gonna go up because these players, their stories are written, less and less good graded cards are out there. Making those good graded cards even more of a premium like when i first started back in 2018 like getting back into vintage i could pick a four or five up all day long it was just i, I would get finicky about it and maybe try to get it at maybe 80 percent of what the comps were but I, I was in no rush it wasn't a big deal if a four or five was out there even with pre-wars twos we're out there all the time, threes. But now, oh my Lord, like you could barely find four or fives of mantles. And if they're out there, people want four figures automatically. And it's just like, I was paying 100 to $200 for that card back in 2018. I, I have to wrap my head around um, the availability of these cards and the premium of the higher grades now. Um, you just don't see the Ty Cobbs, a two and a three are obscene, five, four grand. And before they were two grand. And I thought that was too much, but it ain't. It's like they're just a premium, so you have to pay for it. So with yeah, vintage, I think go ahead. Oh, go ahead, finish your thought, and then I'll tell you what I'm thinking. I was just saying that with vintage, the thing is it, it becomes um over time, it's harder to find better graded cards because they're staying in collectors' collections. Bingo. And that was exactly my point. That This Ted Williams that I showed earlier will never... It's not going to see the light of day for a long time. It's it's off the mark. It's off the... you know. And as I continue to accumulate, I think there's more and more guys like me that as they buy cards, they're, they're in their kind of forever collections. And they're it's just eating up all the supply and 
you know, getting lucky and finding a collection out there that's never been touched and is, is becoming more and more rare because more and more are being discovered. And they're finding, you know, in grandpa's closet when he died, he had all these cards from the 50s and 60s or 40s or whatever. Those are all getting graded and they're going into forever collection. So it's the turnover is, I think, picked up so much so that it, you're right. You got to if you see one that you that you like that you want for your collection, don't. And the again, price matters. Right. But maybe maybe the time is right to get it while you can oh they're yeah they're only going to get more scarce in my opinion and i regret i didn't finish my mickey mantle run when i when i was really heavy into it but i wanted to diversify a little bit and get into other players i'm like i'm a little too hot for mantle right now let me cool off him for a little bit i regret it i could have picked up his whole you know run like the majority of them for two three hundred dollars and then the harder ones for a thousand here 1500 there and then the rookie for like I don't know 10 grand done now forget about it we're talking like 25 to 30 grand and I don't know if I could throw that much money to finish a run right now my son's going off to college just to let you know and you do have a 52 tops mantle which I will and and if you haven't picked up on it James is a pretty big Yankees guy even though he lives in uh, the Dallas area he's a local guy to me which is great because we see each other at shows. We can, he could come over here. Why don't you just come over tonight? Why don't you just... <laughs> we should have done the, the stream over there. We should have just person. done it live or like a, a sitting side by side doing the stream. That would have been actually kind of cool. I've never done that for a show. It would yeah. have been better. Uh, next time. Next Maybe time. Next time. Yeah. Next time. Next time. We'll hang out. But uh, any final thoughts you want to give? Tell everybody you know, uh, certainly where they can find you on whatever media, social media platforms you're on. And, uh, Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't get into the whole big social media thing. So I'm archaic when it comes to that, but, um, I guess final thoughts with, um, vintage is, um, the last thing I never really got, uh, was able to get into was, um, vintage is, mainly the only one that I could see as artwork with a lot of their cards. And I never got into that aspect of what I appreciate them. I, I draw, I appreciate art. I, one of my favorite trips ever was to go to Rome and I went to the Sistine Chapel and the Vatican and I, I, all of that just blew my mind. Eight days of bliss, but I love art. So when I look at cards from the vintage era, like uh, with his uh, 53 Eddie Matthews, I don't even care about the grade. I just love the color of the bill, how it picks up the PSA flip and his boyish look in this 53 tops card. I think this is one of his best cards he ever has. Uh, another card that I think is one of the best is this uh, Jimmy Fox card, which I think the Diamond Stars does such a great job with their artwork. Um, so underrated, such an underrated set, I think. But I mean, just look at all the details and the catcher. He wasn't really a catcher, he was a first baseman, but you see him and a catcher's gear in this card, making this like a one of a kind card to me. And then they even incorporated action shots with their uh, set, which is pretty cool. And I love seeing stuff like this in a card. And uh, to get the realism with Lou Gehrig in this card is just 
stunning beauty to me. And there's a great two. It, it, it doesn't matter. Look how, how colorful this is and it pops. To me, it's, it's just as beautiful as a picture. You go down to the T-Tour 6's John McGraw looking like he's chilling there. Like that right. is such a cool shot. And the red popping there. I love cards in the vintage era and pre-war era also because of the artwork. And I wish they, like you see um, Perez Steel or like with the Don Russ, uh, Diamond Kings, you see them illustrate a lot of the artwork with those. I wish they would give a little more insight into the artists that painted and drew some of this stuff. I think they should get a little bit more uh, spotlight with great jobs that they did with their artwork in the past. Yeah, for sure. And and that's kind of come full circle, right? I mean, we got Project 2020 from Tops and Project 70. They're doing all these modern interpretations of these classic cards. So, I mean, that art is becoming, I think, more and more a part of the hobby, which is cool. It's kind of an homage to how it used to be. And, uh, you know, what was the last painted set? 55, 56, right? So 50. 57, they started using pictures, right. actual graphs and uh -huh. uh, but the i think the art scene is is integrating with the card scene more now than probably ever right right with the and then you have the graphic design so definitely if it's not the picture itself they'll incorporate it in the background um you know tops fire and stuff like that so they have been trying to incorporate it a little bit more merge it and think outside the box, how can we be different from another set or from last year's set, so on and so forth. But um, I, I love vintage for that also. The, the other reason is the artwork because I love art in my, you know, overall in general. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, James, man, thanks for making your inaugural visit to Golden Age of Cardboard. I hope you'll come back and uh, we can do this again soon. Well, the next one, I'm definitely going to your house and we won't do no streaming, no blacking <laughs> out. We'll be hanging out. That sounds great. Uh, thanks, everybody, for watching this week, listening on podcasts. Again, go leave a review. would love to hear your thoughts. Have a great night. And uh, as always, keep collecting.